As junior church is being dismissed, uh, we can uh, turn to Isaiah 58. We are going to study useless fasting today. Useless fasting. Now, intermittent fasting is uh, quite the rage these days in the health uh, community. Um, some of you in this room are doing the 16-8 split, where you eat for eight hours, you fast for 16 faithfully, and you find that to be good health. Others will fast for a full day each week or two days every two weeks or... Um, it's all over the board, and, and uh, the, the patterns are limitless. The benefits are all over the map as well. Uh, everything from giving your digestive system a break to improved insulin sensitivity uh, to uh, autophagy, self-eating, where the body kind of does spring cleaning on the bad cells. I don't know if that's medically proven or if it's just theoretical, but I know that that is often cited. So fasting right now is very much in vogue. But wait a minute. The Bible talks about fasting too. So maybe we as Christians can pull a twofer. Two for one. As long as you're fasting, maybe you could turn that into a prayer fast and uh, kind of get a two for one out of this. If you think that way, today's text is probably going to slap you in the face a little. Uh, health fasting, I, I believe it's a, a good thing. But uh, the well-being of the individual is really at the center of that fast. And, and God is just not real good at sharing the stage or sharing the pedestal with false idols or other motivations. Uh, yeah, fasting for Jesus when you're really doing it for your health, that's like jogging for Jesus, lifting weights for Jesus, playing tennis for Jesus, whatever it might be. Uh, we have a God who just doesn't fit into our molds, doesn't fit into our schedule and say, hey, you know, I can work you in here, God, and, you know, we can got to do two for one. He doesn't, uh, he's a person. He is a person. He's not human. God the Father is not human. The Son is both divine and human. God the Father is not human, but he's a person. And he takes things personally. And, and it is just wrong to, to, to kind of fit him in, in these things. Now, our motivation in, in the fasting in our culture, you know, there, there are some Christians who fast and we don't know who they are because Jesus instructed us well on that. But uh, our motivation for those who do fast and you know about it is usually health and wellness. The Jews' motivation was really about their culture, qualifying as a religious person, but also it was about manipulating God. In other words, if I fast for you, God, I expect some action here. Okay? Just plain and simple. I'm, 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 I'm taking it up a notch. I'm not just praying. I'm fasting and praying. And so I expect some things here. And, and the faster is going to say today, hey, God, why are you ignoring this? Why aren't you paying attention to my piety? The, um, that's the heart of the people in this passage. And, and here's the other thing, the, 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 the crux of it that, that God points out. Yeah, you're fasting for me. And you're assembling every week for church. You're assembling. You want to know my will, but you're not letting it inconvenience you, are you? <laughs> you're doing exactly what you want to do, contrary to my will. So you're fasting. You're going through all the forms, but your heart is just all wrong. So let's see how God responds to this mentality. We are in Isaiah chapter 58. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression. To the house of Jacob, their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you did not see it? 
Uh, why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fasting that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, from your own people. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually to satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. God, as we approach you today, uh, we recognize that you are a holy God. You are desirable, and you are the most desirable end in the universe. That, Father, everything points to you, and we look forward to you. God, we also recognize that you are transcendent and sovereign. You are above the fray, and yet knowledge of all, always present, and always working. Father, you have put us on this earth to serve you. And we thank you, Father, for the ways in which you give grace and aid and help and show mercy to us. But Father, I pray that we would not reverse the roles and think that you should be serving us. I pray that you would help us to be in our place. And Father, help us to have a proper regard for you. And when we fast and pray, might it be thy will be done. Lord, I pray that our fasting and prayers, our religious fasting and prayers would change us and cause us to conform to your will and to delight to do your will. Lord, help us to endure whatever you might have in our lives. Help us to accept it and to endure it and to trust that all will be made right in the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we begin our study, the first thing we're going to consider is that religious deeds are not always religious. Verses 1 and 2, you have the, God saying to the prophet Isaiah, cry out, uh, cry aloud, do not hold back, 
Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. As we look at this, there's a condemnation in the midst of their religious deeds. And that's where I say religious deeds are not always religious. What could be wrong with the uh, activities of verse number two? Do you see what they're doing? They're seeking him daily. What could be wrong with that? Uh, They delight to know his ways. They want to know, I assume, God's word. Well, the problem comes in the next line, as if they were a nation that did righteousness. So whatever they're doing, whenever they assemble, whenever they draw near to learn God's word, they they aren't letting it get in their way of doing exactly what they want to do every day of the week. They assemble, they like to be regarded as religious people. Let's face it, it's Jerusalem. Jerusalem, I mean, you, you had politics and culture and religion all married together. The Davidic line was established where? In 2 Samuel. Uh, So the politics are part of their religion. The culture was blended with the religion. So yes, we are religious people and we get together and we do this every week, every day. We assemble. But it doesn't change who we are at work and how we treat people around us. How can we today engage in what seems like devotion on a daily basis and yet Um, not be doing righteousness. Well, evangelicalism is full of scoundrels, uh, whether pastors in it for the money, in it for notoriety, in it for uh, self-promotion, or even within a church, social climbers, people who come to church and and they ingratiate everybody to them by by being eye servants, by, by doing things not quietly and privately, but making sure everybody knows I am doing this and then expecting some feedback some, 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 uh, some uh, rubbing, uh, stroking of the ego, if you will. Another way people can get engaged in, uh, in seeming acts of worship is because they love church life and they love social structure for what they get out of it. Uh, when you come to a, a healthy church, people should be there asking the Lord how they can serve one another. And so you come to church and maybe you do get served and you appreciate that and and, uh, but here's how you know you've crossed the line. If your first thought in evaluating your church is, what have they done for me lately? You've got yourself in the center of that picture. Uh, do they give me attention? Uh, do they give me recognition? Why haven't they put me in a position of leadership? How have they shown the appreciation I am due And when you're in a church that has pie fellowships and chocolate fountain brunches and breakfasts every week, it's quite the social environment. And you can just simply love that. And and how do you know you've crossed the line in that? Well, when you're prayerless. When you come and you participate in this and you don't have a heart for God and you're not talking to God in your prayer life. When you're here and you're not seeing, who can I disciple? Who can I encourage spiritually and how can I encourage them? Or simply, how can I love others? Because a church is full of needy people who need love. And so where you know you've crossed that line is when you evaluate a church based with yourself in the center of it, rather than seeing your church as a place that declares the truth of God's word, 
whereby you can grow, whereby others can grow. A place where you can disciple others and it's encouraged that you do. And a place where you can love others. Romans 12.10 says, outdo one another in showing honor. There's your focus. Outdo one another in showing honor. But here in Isaiah 58, these are people who love the religious culture in Jerusalem where it was just all blended together. But you can be in the house of God without actually knowing God. So next, these worshipers press their questions further against God. How can he overlook our piety? How can he miss this and ignore it? They're just indignant. Verse 3, why have we fasted and you see it not? We have humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it. Here's the answer. Behold, in the day you fast, you seek your own pleasure. Now, that word pleasure could be business. And... I am seeing the rest of verse 3 and verse 4 to be all in the context of a work environment. And, and in their work environment, uh, in antiquities, you had apprentices that would make themselves bond servants. They would be legally slaves, and, 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 and they, were, they would have to. They, there just weren't options. You know, there wasn't a want ads where you could just easily move from job to job in antiquities. So if you had employment and you could uh, feed your family by it, you, you, you were kind of stuck. But it says you seek your own pleasure or business and you oppress your workers. Behold, you, only qu- you, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Uh, so uh, it sounds like they could backhand somebody uh, that, that this had been happening or that it had happened. Uh, at least it's symbolic of the kind of abuse that God is pointing to. So there's, there's a kind of Christianity that's hard to distinguish from sorcery. Some Christians see fasting as a way to get God's attention, as a way to get God on the move. Uh, that, that, that when you fast, I've seen fasting books and they say, oh man, when you fast, that is so compelling to God, he cannot resist but to answer your prayers. I, I looked on Amazon last night just to see what the latest books were and you, know, you can kind of read the introductions. And one pastor with like 400 likes, I believe, uh, 400, uh, he had a rating of 4.5 stars on his book and 480 ratings. So it's a well-established book on Amazon about fasting. And his theory was, God placed you on this earth not to fight spiritual battles alone, but there's an army of heaven, a host of heaven. And you think about it, that's true. Uh, there, uh, when Daniel was praying to God and fasting to God, there was a spiritual battle uh, between the, uh, Michael the archangel and, and, and Satan that, that just uh, was taking place in the background. Daniel was unaware until an angel came and told him as a prophet. So that much is true. But, the, but this, this pastor has a book on fasting where he says the ingredient to releasing the armies of heaven is fasting. And, and there are just a lot of Christians who want to put together a formula from the Bible that uh, you know, that, 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 that if you do this and this and this and that, that the armies of heaven are then sent. And that really puts you in control, doesn't it? Uh, to me, it, it's, it's like, uh, they look to this as like a book of spells. That if you put together the right ingredients in the Christian life, you can make things happen. And I, I think that that is just heresy. I think that's what's going on here. They're praying, they're fasting, and God... You haven't changed my situation. How could you ignore my fasting? Listen to, Isaiah, to Psalm 69, verse 10. Uh, as it talks about both fasting and then verse 13, David will talk about his expectation from his fasting. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, 
Now notice he humbled his soul with fasting. It changes you. It doesn't necessarily move God, but it changes you. It, fasting, became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit at the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. So for some reason, David's fasting was a source of shame. But listen to verse number 13. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. Those are key words. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. In the abundance of time. God, when you declare that it is time, out of your love, answer my prayer. And, and just do it out of your faithfulness and out of your love. I, I, that's, that's all I ask. Now let me ask you, is that not the prayer of every martyr when they're being chased down for their life? When does God answer the martyr's prayer when he says, God, save my life from these wicked men? Well, oftentimes it's after death. And that is in the abundance of time. And it's a mighty resurrection in the presence of God. Uh, so uh, that's David's attitude here is that, that God, I am fasting, I'm praying. It's become a matter of shame. It wasn't a matter of pride that however it got out, however it was known, that the king was uh, going through this time of mourning and fasting, that, that it became uh, just people were abusing him because of it. It was just a matter of shame and ugliness. And his prayer is, God, I submit to your time frame. I submit to your agenda. I just trust that you're faithful. I just trust that you're loving and that you have the answers. But these guys in verse 3 complain. God is not adequately rewarding their piety. Have you ever felt that God owed you more? That God did not treat you kindly enough. That he did not relieve your burdens in this sin-cursed world. You've contributed your part of sin in this world, as have I. But, but he just didn't do enough to, to release your burdens in this sin-cursed world. Have you ever felt that way? There are people who have been through the trials of Job. They've lost all their sons and daughters. All their wealth. Going through great medical trials. And yet, like Job, they remain faithful. And then there are people like Cain who just offered the wrong offering that was not acceptable to God and just hated God for it and complained to God. Be careful in asking God how he can overlook your piety because you might just get an answer. That's what happens here, verse 3, the middle of the verse. Behold, in the day you fast, you seek your own pleasure or business and oppress your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Now, verse 5 is a rhetorical question. It's a long rhetorical question, which will anticipate what should be an easy answer. And at first, I was, it wasn't so easy. Uh, is the answer yes or is it no? Um, I think the answer is no based on verse number 6 and where he's going. Uh, because he says, Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow, his head down, bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Well, I see a lot of biblical fasts where people are bowed low and, and they are in sackcloth and ashes. So that's where I was a little bit unsure. Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? I think the answer is no because of verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? It seems to be presented as an alternative. To loose the bonds of wickedness, bonds that you hold people in, by the way. So I, I think the answer to that is no, that they're bowing their head down like a reed. They're making a show with their ashes, a show with their sackcloth. 
and uh, and but but in fact they're 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 just being uh, uh, mean and and terrible people. The personal pleasure of fasting in their day was uh, to be regarded as religious and to be regarded as a spiritually disciplined person. Like, oh, you fast. Like, that means something. And so Jesus said in Matthew 6.16, when you fast, do not look gloomy as hypocrites. When verse number 5 says, is this the kind of fast where you bow your head like a reed? Um, out of weakness, you just show and, and you've got all this sackcloth and ash going on so people can see what you're doing. Um, Jesus said, when you fast, do not look gloomy as the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. How do you disfigure your face so that you're seen to be fasting? Um, I practiced this in a mirror as I was studying this. I was like, I think when you fast, you get really skinny. I mean, if you do a really long fast, I've never done like, you know, a long fast, but, but um, I, I think you get really skinny. And so I think what they do is they just kind of, you know, just kind of flex the cheeks a little bit, right? And, and you can even talk like this, and it kind of makes you seem a little weak, and that even enhances the, you know. So um, I'm just so weary and, and hungry and spiritual. <laughs> I would practice. Um, anyway, but uh, I, I think that's what they did. I just think they learned how to, to flex certain cheek muscles, and they just went around like that just so they looked so spiritual. And uh, as I look at their problems, by the way, when, when it says that they um, oppress their workers, they quarrel, they fight, and they hit with a wicked fist, I, I'm kind of tempted to roll that all into one. Uh, you know, when people fast, they get edgy. Uh, you know, they get hungry and angry, and we blend that together. We call it hangry. You know, I'm hungry, angry, right? And they're just edgy, right? And so I, I think in their spiritual quest to look spiritual and to fast, they actually were edgy, and they were quarreling, and they were fighting, and they were oppressing their workers. And once in a while, they'd backhand somebody with their fist. I don't know. Um, but but um, it could all be disparate events, but, um, but I kind of see those as all together. So I see that as a rhetorical question in verse number five. Is this what fasting is? The sackcloth, the ashes, and the bowed head? And I think the answer is no, that the answer is going to be found in, um, in verse number uh, six here. I didn't show you the answer. I'm sorry. Number two is piety. Let's go to question number three. Um, God requires a generous heart on the part of those who would fast in prayer. There's a heart issue that's missing uh, in these people. Look at verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. What is this about a yoke and oppressed people and bonds of wickedness? Well, I mentioned a moment ago that in, in antiquities, you would become an apprentice to somebody. If you wanted to be a doctor for 20 years, you would be that doctor's apprentice. And then, you know, you would, under contract, you would be released in the 20th year, 21st year, and, and you would be your own doctor then. It was a pathway to growth economically. And, and so, uh, but, but, but you were a slave. You were a piece of property. And, and so if, if, if they did backhand you and you weren't permanently dismembered, disabled, um, in the Torah, you know, there were provisions if you disabled a slave or if you killed a slave, there were punishments. But, but you know, if you just backhanded somebody, but you could get away with that because what are they going to do, leave? Uh, that, that would not be an option. So I, I, think, that, I think that part of the, I, I think people were masters at working the system 
of, of bond service. And, and I almost wonder if they didn't find ways to further entrap an individual where needs would come up. Well, you know what? If we add a few years, if we add a few terms, I, I just, it's just the human way uh, of sinfulness. And, and so uh, this is what you should be doing when you fast. You should be loosing the bonds of wickedness. You should be removing the yoke and the burden from people. Verse 7, is it not to share your bread with the hungry? To bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, and I believe that to be your own people, your own family. Israel is one large family. Then, and here come some promises. Uh, if you're fasting with, a, with an honest, open, righteous heart, then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up speedily. And on it goes with some beautiful, beautiful promises. But then look at the middle of verse number 9. It, it goes back to the, the cautions, if you take away the yoke from your midst. The pointing of the finger, which could be a formal accusation. The pointing of the figure, finger and speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the fl- afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. So Israel was facing oppression during this era. They're praying for God. They're praying for freedom. Uh, The bosses even, the landowners, the masters, um, they're praying for relief. And God isn't granting it to them. And one of the reasons is, why would God grant freedom to an individual who is enslaving others? Why would he grant freedom to a nation who is enslaving others? It's like the servant who had been forgiven of much and then went out and imprisoned and beat a man who owed him a little bit. Uh, that, that, that is just inconsistent with God and his, his morality. And so believers here are to be busy about liberating others first, helping others first and foremost. And then we trust God for relief from our own oppression in his time, in his way, in the abundance of time, as David said. And um, these people were oppressing, even backhanding people. Verse 7 speaks of sharing and housing the poor and then clothing the naked. And it talks about not hiding yourself from your own flesh. And I believe that to be your own family. Uh, the Old Testament, as well as uh, the Old Testament for Israel, as well as the New Testament for the church, is very clear that there is a priority on charity for people of the household of God. Uh, listen to Leviticus 25. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. Now, let's just stop there for a second because Gentiles could proselytize to Judaism and they would be treated as if they were brothers. Uh, there, there, are, there are provisions for generosity towards Gentiles, towards Gentiles, and I take it to be proselytes in Israel. When it says, if your brother, I take that to be a fellow Jew, becomes poor and cannot maintain himself, you're to take him in like a sojourner. I I don't think that means like a Gentile. I think what that means is you take him in as if he were out of his own home country and had no resources whatsoever. His needs become your needs. I mean, your problem. Uh, And so you're not looking to this brother who became poor and, and, and saying, well, you know what? Don't you have some resources over there? Don't you have, you know, and okay, I'll feed you another meal. But don't you have... No, you just treat him like he is from a faraway country and he has no land, no resources, no family. You bring him in, you provide for him. 
Again, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself, maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your mother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So this is based on the character of God that, that we would do this if we were Jews to our fellow Jews who became poor. His problems become my problems. You bring him in. You let him live in your house. You be very careful. You don't turn this into a money-making situation. You show him love. And the New Testament is the same in the church. It says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. By the way, that word especially Melista is the Greek word. It could also be translated namely. And namely fits really well in context. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, namely those who are of the household of faith. If you read that in context and consider the alternative translation, the priority on believers serving believers is very, very clear in Scripture. We also serve the lost with an eye to win them to Christ. But I tell you what, I just rejoice. Uh, I, 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 I'm tangentially involved in the deacons fund the deacons handle that but um, I, I'm, I'm part of the conversations when that is used that's been used multiple times this year and, and there's nobody in the United States of America who's truly poor in terms of going hungry but needs arise and, and deep needs arise and, and to see that fund and that love and then there's the things I don't know about and sometimes there's the things I facilitate that I do know about there's a lot of love being shared among God's people and that is appropriate and that is a delight to see happening. Well, our last point here, God reiterates his covenant, promises to Israel to bless her when she obediently follows him. We saw some of this in, um, in verse number 9, then you shall call, the Lord will answer. You shall cry, he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, I'm in verse 10, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. Now, as I see this, I see national promises to Israel. And if you have a Bible with you, turn to Deuteronomy 28. I'll just point out a couple of verses. Deuteronomy 28. Because Israel was placed in the middle of the world. In terms of land travel, if you wanted to go from Europe and Asia down to Ethiopia and Africa and Egypt, uh, you had to go through Israel. That was the one land bridge to get there. And God placed Israel in the belly button of the world, the center of the world, with this idea. All the world would pass through, and they would learn something about God through encountering Israel. And so for him, he, for them, he had specific material blessings. Now, modern-day health and wealth preachers get a hold of these passages, and they start preaching, hey, if you give to my ministry, God will bless you, and good things will happen, and look at this promise to Israel, look at that promise to Israel, and they try to bring that into today's era. It, it, it's, it's, um, it's criminal. But um, these are national promises, and I want to say this, they're not personal promises to individual Israelites either. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 1 of Deuteronomy 28. 
And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed you shall be in the city, and blessed you shall be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, and the increase of your herds, and the young of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you be when you come in, and blessed you shall be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies to rise against you who rise against you, to be defeated before you. Now, we could keep reading all the way down through verse 14. There's many, many promises, and these are reiterated elsewhere too in the Torah. But these are physical, national promises to Israel. It says things like, uh, blessed will be the fruit of your womb. Now, just think about that. Does that mean that, and, and the height of this promise was probably realized in the days of David going into Solomon. Uh, Israel was really walking with God and blessed by God. Now, David had stumbled, and there were some national judgments. But overall, uh, David, uh, God describes him as his friend, a man after his own heart. And, um, and, and Solomon, with his wisdom, it was, I would regard that as the apex of the kingdom of Israel. Okay? And, and I would say that that's when Deuteronomy 28 was being lived out. Now, when that was being lived out, does that mean there wasn't a single barren woman? Does that mean that the fruit of the womb always lived to a ripe old age, that no children died? I, I don't think that's what it means. I think nationally they were blessed mightily. But individually, people were still getting sick and dying during those years. So these are not individual promises. These were national promises. And as the world traveled through Israel and they found an obedient country that loved their God, people would say and people did say, how mighty is their God? Now, drop down to verse number 15, because while evangelicalism oftentimes wants to claim the first 14 verses for the church, we don't want to claim this for ourselves. Verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you. Cursed you shall be in the city. Cursed you shall be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb. Does that mean there were eras in which every woman's womb had dried up in all the nation of Israel? Um, you know, there, there might have been a, a momentary. I'm trying to think if there was a, a moment. But I, I don't think that that's the, the rub of this. That... that um, that everybody was just sick and dying every moment without being able to procreate and, and, and to live. Um, verse 19, Cursed shall you be when you come in. Cursed you shall be when you go out. So our view of God's various dispensations of his grace toward people are that would be that you would, we would encourage you not to import this relationship in Deuteronomy 28 and these promises even in Isaiah 58 into your personal life. That if you do this, then your life's just going to go swimmingly. You could be called to a life of martyrdom. I hope not. But you could be persecuted from tomorrow through the rest of your life, and you could die a martyr's death in prison. I hope that's not the case. I don't wish that on anyone. But I do know that if God in his sovereignty allows it, it's the best thing for you for all of eternity, that there will be reward in that. So um, I, I would say be very careful not to take these dispensations of time and promise to Israel and apply them to the church or apply them to your life personally in rigid fashion. I do believe God blesses the faithful, but what does blessing look like? Sometimes blessing looks like strength for the trial that you are going through. 
like Job, to honor God for the season that he has you going through the trial. And as David said, in the fullness of time, show me your grace and blessing. Well, verse 13 concludes by inviting Israel to repent. If you look at verse 13, if you turn back, that word turn back is the Hebrew word for repent. Shuv is the Hebrew word. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath. Now, wait a minute. Why would we want to repent from the Sabbath? That makes no sense. The Sabbath is commanded by God. Well, look at the next line. From doing your pleasure on my holy day. And again, that word could be business. So if you turn back, if you repent. Now, that's not going to be popular to go to a bunch of religious people and say, hey, you need to repent. <laughs> okay. And how did Isaiah die? He was either flayed or quartered. I, I, I forget how. But um, Isaiah had, according to history, not according to the Bible, according to history, he had a really rough death. And uh, th- th- this kind of an invitation to a re- bunch of religious people would get you there, I would think. If you turn back your foot, if you repent your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure in my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day uh, of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure, and again, that could be business, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and he will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So they were taking this day of rest, and the Sabbath is a beautiful, beautiful uh, act of worship that God laid out because God, God said to Israel, here's how I want you to honor me. I want you to take a break. I want you to stop and not worry in a day where it's hand-to-mouth existence for so many people. I want you to not worry about that. I want you to take a day of rest and let me take care of you. And, and he demonstrated through the manna how that manna would be able to last for two days on the Sabbath. And, and so God invited his people to this relationship of faith and trusting him. And it's, it's, it's really odd how even today we can say, yeah, you know what, um, it's all good, Lord, but I've got other priorities that are different than your priorities. I just, I just need to go over here and do this because I really want to go do this. And so we grab the gusto of life against whatever God would be wishing for us in terms of serving him, in terms of worshiping him. And we forget that God not only gives us all things to enjoy, he gives us the ability to enjoy those all things, right? And, and so you can have a lot of stuff and not enjoy it too. You could do a lot of stuff and not accomplish what you think. You could look back years later and say, you know what? I set aside God's will here to do that. I set aside God's will there to do that. And looking back on it, it really didn't pan out all that great. It's because he's an almighty God. And he's a person. And when you look at his word and say, yeah, you know, I kind of know what you would want me to do, but eh, I got other plans. I got other desires. I think I'll, get, I think I'll be happier doing this. You're fighting against a sovereign God. <laughs> it's just not going to work the way you expect it to. And, uh, and that's what they're invited to repent from the way they're doing their own desires or doing their own business on God's Sabbath, the day that is to rest, re- reflect and rest in him. So true fasting today versus false fasting. True fasting is heartfelt love for God that surfaces in moral behavior, sacrificing yourself for others while you pray to him and rest in him. Israeli culture was bound to her religion. The Torah was a matter of national pride, but many didn't let that inconvenience them in the way they actually lived their lives. They observed the forms to be accepted in their culture, 
including fasting. And, and, you know, it's a pretty good religious thing. It's a lot of personal discipline when you fast to the Lord. And so God, I kind of expect some stuff. They would go to the assembly of the people of Israel, having fasted, and I'm sure looking like they had fasted, and engaged in all kinds of religious rites. But these were not nice people. They were quarrelsome, angry, and they could even hit. (laughs) They bite. (laughs) They were far from living sacrificially. God encourages them away from this mere formality of fasting. He calls them away from functional fasting that seeks to control God. Rather than being their tools, he calls them to become his tools. Feeding and housing the poor. Bringing justice to the afflicted. And I believe that justice to the afflicted was for them to quit oppressing the afflicted. Then, he says, I will heal your nation. Consistent with Deuteronomy 28, I will heal your nation. I do hope when you have burdens in life, you will ask God for relief from the burdens. I I think fasting is appropriate when you are just so overwhelmed that you you just can't eat. your, your, Your life is burdened and you don't have any desire other than to see God strengthen you, enable you, get you through this, get a loved one through this. But I would do I would encourage you to fast and to pray in the context of living for Jesus and of serving his children, focusing more on giving yourself than conveniencing yourself. Pray to God, but allow him to place you in whatever circumstances he knows to be best for your eternal joy. Just pray for him to give you the strength to honor him through it all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word today. I pray that you would use it in our hearts and in our lives. Help us to walk with you. Help us to call out to you, to cry out to you, Lord. And Father, help us to wait on you and to trust you. To know that in the fullness of time, Father, you answer prayer. And you do so in your own sovereign way. God, I just pray that however you answer our prayers, you would answer them such that you would be glorified in our lives and we would be delighted to look back on these memories from eternity's vantage point. And with that, Lord, we invite you to make us your tools and to use us as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.